0: Our, our text is racing to Elijah. And if you open your Bibles to 1 Kings 15, I want to show you how uh, the author here of 1 Kings is, is using uh, these kings as a setup in an effort to get us to the arrival of Elijah. And if you're there in your, your Bibles, before we go into these pictures in depth, I want you to kind of look over the pages of chapter 15 and chapter 16 and just notice how short the accounts are of all of these kings. And we spent quite a bit of time being able to look at Jeroboam. We were able to spend some time looking at Rehoboam. But now as you come to chapter 15 and you flip your pages into chapter 16, you'll notice depending upon the print size of your Bible, you only get about that much about every king that's that's listed. The the goal of the author is to get us to Elijah and he's trying to show us the conditions by which things are happening in Judah and in Israel at this point so that we can see the arrival of Elijah. But in these accounts, God is certainly teaching us and showing us some things about these kings who ruled over these nations and is trying to teach us some very important lessons in particular about how to live in dark days. We have really spent the last year in a number of our lessons talking about how to have hope in hard times, living in dark times, dealing with suffering, things like that, and this quick account of these numerous kings fall in line, and as we go through them in a cursory manner, we're going to notice a common thread that reaches through all of these kings that is the primary message that the author is giving to us. Chapter fifteen opens that we now have uh, the the son of Rehoboam. We now have Abijam on on the throne at this point, and we're we're told that he reigns a big whopping three years here as he he takes the throne. He does not last very long, and and we are told about the terrible things that he does in verse three. He walked in the sins of his father that had been done before him. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David uh, his father. So immediately we're going to start seeing this very common refrain about here are the kings and they're not like David. they're unfortunately like their their father. And, and what you have, I think, is one of the most important statements in regards to the kings of Judah that's set up for us here in in verse 4 where it says, Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord, for his God, gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem. You'll notice that verse four basically says we should wipe out this dynasty, too. Uh, Abijam does not walk in the ways of David. He acts just like Rehoboam. Rehoboam has been sinful, as we noted in the prior chapters. And verse 4 just simply says, it's because of the promise made to David that this lineage is not taken out, but rather Jerusalem is established and more of rehoboam's line is going to continue to sit on the throne. Verse 7 tells or verse 6 tells us about war that's going on which when we read about war going on within Israel or within Judah or Judah warring with Israel it is a stark reminder to you we don't have the peace that God promised. And the reason we don't have peace and rest from our enemies and have our borders secure is because They're sinning against God. And so here, even the southern nation is working along those lines in terms of being sinful. Same thing happens for uh, his son. You have Asa. He rises to the throne after him. He reigns much longer, 41 years in Jerusalem, according to verse 10. Here is a short, rare breath of fresh air that you will get from time to time, but not too often. He did what was right in the sight of God. Uh, he bucks the trend a little bit with some pretty amazing activity uh, for his part where we are told, like in verse 12, he takes away that temple prostitution that was in the land. Remember, Rehoboam had set that up in, in Judah. And so he removes that. He also removes the idols that his father had made. Verse 13, he removes the queen mother because she had made an Asherah pole and Asa cut down that image and burned it into the fire however you'll also catch this common refrain the high places were not removed and so extensive reformation happens with Asa unfortunately not going all the way however we are told that his heart was true to God and I think that's such an important picture that's given to us is that here he is and he is depending upon God he is walking in the ways of David and yet a little interesting thing that happens: you have the northern nation Israel uh, mounting an attack and successfully seizing one of the nation, one of the cities within within Judah, only a few miles away. When you read there in chapter fifteen that uh, Israel takes Ramah, Ramah is one of the cities, and it's only a few miles from Jerusalem. It would be as if like a, a foreign power came in and and took Baltimore and think about how close that is to D.C. And you're like, this isn't good. They're right there at the, the capital. And that's what Israel is able to accomplish. Asa, though, does not turn to God. Instead, he goes and he takes the treasures of his palace and what is of the temple. Ironically enough, he'd put the treasures into the temple and then takes them back out to pay off the king of Syria and to go and attack Israel so that Israel will stop attacking Judah. And once they stop attacking Judah, they're able to get Ramah back. So there you go with all of that. Picture is Asa does pretty good, but not exactly what God would have been looking for. Not completely depending upon God, but a heart that was seeking after God, a heart that desired to follow the Lord. And these are one of the few times that we're going to see that interestingly this is all that the writer wants to do with Judah the rest of the text is about the northern nation of Israel and again you get the sense that the writer is is rushing us to a particular point. And that's what we're going to do is kind of rush with him to get to this outcome. You have the rest of chapter 15, a description of the kings of Judah. They're not typically, go- I mean, the kings of Israel, and they're not going to do very well. For example, verse 25, Nadab is the son of Jeroboam. He takes the throne. He also lasts a big whopping two years uh, and doesn't do well because he does evil in the sight of the Lord, verse 26, he walks in the ways of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. So uh, Nadab, awful, does terrible sins and he is the son of Jeroboam. Now you might remember a promise was made about Jeroboam and his house that they were all going to die a violent death. Well, that's what happens uh, next in verse 28. We're told that Basha rises up and kills Nadab. He's of a different line altogether, so that's the end of the Jeroboam line. Destroys all the sons of Jeroboam, establishes Himself is king, and that then is a fulfillment of what would have been told to Jeroboam. And so all the houses wiped out by, ba- by Basha. However, we are told that he also follows in the sins of his father and does evil as well. He is just like Jeroboam. And what is really interesting is the very same prophecy that was made to Jeroboam is now made against Basha. Look at verse 2 of chapter 16. Here a prophet Jehu comes and the prophet says to Basha, since I exalted you out of the dust and made you leader over my people Israel. And you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel to sin, provoking me to anger with their sins. Behold, I will utterly sweep away Basha and his house and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Remember how God said that to Jeroboam, you were nothing, you were a servant in Solomon's house and I made you king and then you rejected me and so I'm wiping out your house. Well, now Basha's given an opportunity. All right, you rule over Israel. He does the very same thing that Jeroboam does. So a prophet comes to Basha and says, you were a nobody. I made you king. You didn't follow the ways of God. So here's God's word against you. Your whole house is going to be destroyed, which that is what happens next is in verse 8. This uh, Elah, he comes to the throne. He is the son of Basha. You might get used to this number. He reigned two years. Uh, And then what you have is one of his commanders, Zimri, rises up and kills him and sets up his own dynasty. And now he becomes king over Israel, fulfilling the word of the Lord. If you do any um, Western civilization studies, you might feel like that the northern nation... It's a lot like the Roman Empire that somebody rises up, kills an emperor, takes the throne and says, "Okay, I'm in charge for a while. A couple of kids get to be be ruler and then they're all wiped out and then somebody else jumps in. And and that's kind of what's happening here is you have a king, they'll have one son reign and then the whole nation, the whole house of, of that king is wiped out. A whole new house comes up and does the exact same thing. And is sinning against God and so therefore they are wiped out as well. Verse 15 of chapter 16 tells us about Zimri. He really gets a long reign. Verse 15 tells us he gets seven days. And he then is killed for his evil as he is just as wicked as the house of Asha and just as wicked as the house of Jeroboam. It's very interesting. None of the kings of Israel are understanding cause and effect. And so because they're sinning against God, now they are also killed as well. So Zimri is killed. Not much said about him, except that one of his commanders then takes the throne and his name is Omri. Omri has some interesting details given to him. Verse 25, we are told that Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. I remember last week I told you, keep that phrase in mind, because we were told about Jeroboam and how he did more evil than anybody who was before him, and Rehoboam did likewise. And now we have Omri on the throne and we're told, well, if you thought they set the bar high, Omri sets the bar even higher, and he does even worse than all of those who were before him in committing wickedness. He also follows in the ways of Jeroboam, according to the text, verse 26, provoking uh, the Lord to anger, causing Israel to sin. And that's all that's told to us about Omri. All of this quick hits is rushing to somebody that if you grew up in the pews... You'll know his name really well because the text wants to settle in on a man named Ahab. And he's going to get a lot of territory in this book. And so it's almost like okay, here's Abijah and Asa, Judah. Okay, done. Set them over here for a while. Let's not think about them. Let's run through these kings rise and fall, rise and fall, two years, seven days, two years. Ahab, son of Omri, is now on the throne. And interestingly, we are told with Ahab in verse 29 that he is going to reign for 22 years. And in these 22 years, verse 30 tells us that Ahab did more evil than all who were before him. So Ahab outpaces his dad, who had outpaced Jeroboam. And so we are committing sins uh, of unimaginable uh, process here. And notice the words that are given to us in, in uh, verse 30 where it says that, that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord more that were all who were before him. And as if that had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshiped him. So not only is... Ahab doing worse than Omri who did worse than Jeroboam he looks at that and goes ah sitting like Jeroboam that's easy let's push the envelope even more and he marries Jezebel who comes from the Sidonians and establishes Baal worship and he himself is worshiping Baal. And is causing Israel to sin in that. Verse 32, erecting an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, there in the very capital city. And then what is given to us here in verse 34 exemplifies the situation and becomes the focal point of the two applications that we're going to make tonight. Notice what is stated to us in verse 34. In his days, so during the reign of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. It is interesting that this becomes the capstone picture of Ahab because you'll notice the next sentence is Elijah. And so this is your big summary about where Israel is in terms of his spirituality and a great description of the issue of Ahab and his reign. And we're told here that this man uh, Hiel rebuilds Jer- Jericho to the loss of his firstborn son and his youngest. And you might read that and go, Okay, well, that's sad. That seems to be insignificant, but it is actually something very important. You're told in verse 34 that this was according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Joshua, the son of Nun. So well over 400 years prior, when Jericho was destroyed by Joshua and Israel and the invading army, In chapter 6 and verse 26, we're told that Joshua made a curse against the city of Jericho. And the curse proclamation was this. Anyone who tries to rebuild the city, when they lay the foundations, they will lose their firstborn. And when they finish the gates of the city, they will lose their youngest child. And so here... This man, Heil, comes along and says, I'm going to rebuild Jerusalem with a total disregard for what the word of the Lord had said at that moment. And he lays the foundation, Oldest son dies. And he doesn't stop and go, hmm, I think God said something about that. Maybe we should stop this. No, he continues on and loses his youngest child in the process of completing the city. Of Jericho, the picture of Ahab, the picture of Ahab's reign, and the picture of Israel at this point is that there is a complete and total disregard for the word of the Lord. In fact, that would be a a perfect summary of what we've seen in these two chapters. Because Jeroboam disregards the word of the Lord, condemnation comes on his house, another king arises of a whole new dynasty line, does he do any different? No, he rejects the word of the Lord, walks in the sins of Jeroboam, the same outcome happens to him and his house, so then another household arises, and the same exact thing happens again, that nobody's listening to the word of the Lord, and so therefore judgment and destruction ultimately come upon each of the kings and upon their households during this reign and that's what is given here regarding Ahab and all the evil that is due he's doing verse 33 he did more to provoke the Lord the God of Israel to anger him than any of all the kings of Israel who were before him and there's no better way to sum that up than allowing some guy to go rebuild Jericho and watching his family die in the process with a total disregard for God's word. Now, I want us to think about something important about what God is teaching here, but I want to frame it like this. Can you imagine if there had been a pronouncement about a city that had been destroyed and that pronouncement of a curse that anybody who tries to rebuild this city Would lose their children. But that curse was made back in the 1600s. A long, long time ago. We aren't even here as a country in existence at that point. Back in the 1600s, some guy came along and said, anybody who rebuilds this city. It will be the death of their oldest when they lay the foundation and the death of their youngest when they finish the gates. 400 years later now. Do you suppose everybody would think that is an old wives tale? That's a legend. That's a story. You know, people were making up stuff back in the 1600s. You know, we're so much more civilized and educated were so much smarter than what they were back 400 years ago who's gonna believe some story about some guy who made a curse about rebuilding the city let's just rebuild the city anyway it'd be easy to do i mean we have no care or concern or relevance to anything that was 400 years ago we don't care it's too long it's too old it's irrelevant it has no meaning to us today And yet what I want us to see that even though it had been more than 400 years since Joshua had said those words, it came to pass. Over 400 years. I mean, everybody's apparently forgotten it. has forgotten it, otherwise you would have not bothered and you certainly would have stopped after the death of your first son. The kings have certainly forgotten. And nobody cares about what had God had said at that moment. And that's really the picture that is being given to us. is here is this truth being played out. Jeroboam, he's told his whole house is going to be destroyed and wiped out because of their sins. And years later it comes true. And then Basha's told his whole house is going to be destroyed because they're walking in the sins of Jeroboam. And years later it comes true. And it's capped with the story of Hiel who... 400 years ago, we're told there was a curse placed on this location, rebuilding Jericho, and it comes to pass. Two key messages I want to give you. Number one, just because everyone rejects and dismisses the word of the Lord doesn't mean that God's word will fail. If we want to have hope for living in dark days. Key message number one that comes from these two chapters is it doesn't matter if everyone else is dismissive about the word of God. It's still going to happen. It doesn't matter if everybody goes, ah, that, that was such a long time ago. Oh, that doesn't really matter. It's irrelevant. It doesn't make any sense. We won't believe any of those things. That everyone can reject what God says, and that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. We live in an interesting time in our culture because if you've noticed, we we the air we breathe in this culture is something to this effect. If I don't believe it, then it's not true. <laughs> It's a, it's a really strange phenomenon. I'm going to try that with gravity. I'm going to not believe it and see what happens. We have this ability to think that I have the right to determine what is true and false. And if I declare it to not be true, then it is not true. So there's no gravity. Okay, go try. And I think it's important to see that that is where our culture is right now is that It doesn't matter if you think God's word is true or not. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It doesn't matter if you dismiss it or not. It's still going to happen. And that should give us hope and help in times of rejection like you have going on in the days of Israel and Judah who nobody cares what God says. And everyone is dismissing it. And no one is on board with it. Everybody's worshiping their idols. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Everybody's doing what they think is best. And that does not mean God's word's not going to be fulfilled. And a great scene with that as it comes at the end of chapter 16. This is the essence of what God is trying to say in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah 55, he gives this beautiful invitation of calling people to Come to Him and and why are you wasting your time and wasting your energy on resources, on things that can't satisfy? Just come to the Lord and He will give you the the, the true uh, drink and the true food that is available. And in the process of giving this invitation, He makes this declaration. Isaiah 55 and verse 10, "...as the rain and the snow come down from heaven..." and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Here's God saying, my word Always comes about, and it always does what I purpose for it to do. And I love that he ties it to the idea of rain. This is the great time of year when we all get to watch our grasses all burn up and turn brown because it doesn't rain forever. And we wait till summer when it rains every single day. But right now in the winter, we don't get rain at all. But if we even get just a blip of rain, you walk out the next day and look at your grass. It'll be back to green. It'll just be like, yay, (laughs) 10 minutes of a sprinkle. There it is again. (laughs) And it's right back. And that's what he's using right here as an illustration. Just as the rain always makes your grass grow and why you have to cut it twice as often in the summer than you do in the winter, so is my work. It always accomplishes its purpose. It will always do what it says. And we put our hope in that, that while the world may be dismissive and people will say, well, I just don't, don't believe in that, Everyone can reject it, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen, which ties very closely to the second application. And that is it doesn't matter how much time passes. God's word will still be accomplished and his promises will still happen. That's really the essence of where this ends up is not only does God's word come about, even though everybody rejects it. But not only that, it didn't matter that years had gone by, that Jeroboam's reign continued, finally his house was destroyed. And it didn't matter that Basha's reign continued and continued, his house was destroyed just as God said. And it didn't matter that over 400 years prior, Joshua had said, nobody rebuild Jericho, and if you do, it'll be the death of your children. Time didn't matter. Time never affects God's promises. We must hold on to that as well in dark times. Is the knowledge that everybody else can dismiss it. We believe it because God said it. And I can hold on to that promise and it doesn't matter if it's been a hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand years, six thousand years. Time is irrelevant to the promises of God. In fact, we made the observation in Bible class this morning that the writer of Hebrews illustrates and says essentially if I can reword it a little bit. Name any of the heroes of faith who saw the fulfillment of the promises made to them. They didn't see it in their lifetime. And yet so often what we can have the tendency to do is look at time... And allow that to discredit the way we look at God's promises and cause our faith to be shaken and no longer believe that what God has said is certainly going to come to pass. Peter reminded us of that. Peter directly knew that this was going to be an issue for us, that time would go by and we would be jarred by that. And thus Peter says to us in 2 Peter 3 in verse 8, Don't forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Now the point of that is not so that now you go into like the book of Revelation and start throwing around, you know, one day equals a thousand years and things like that. It's not the point. But the point is what seems long to us is not long to God what seems like forever in terms of our calculation of time, God's not bound by that. We look at it and go, it has been nearly 2,000 years since Jesus ascended. What is going on? And God is saying, I count that like two days. (laughs) His judgments are not affected by time. His promises are not affected by time. Nothing that he says becomes discounted simply because time passes by. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Lord, what is taking so long? What's taking so long He's trying to save more people. That's what's taking so long. What's taking so long is God is an extraordinarily patient God. We should be stunned by that from what we've read tonight. That after the sins of Jeroboam, and you have the kingdom dividing around 933 BC, you could have it just the end. And God just say to the northern nation of Israel, I'm not going to deal with you anymore because I know all the kings after you are only going to be worse. (laughs) They're only going to raise the bar higher in terms of evil and do worse and worse and worse. But God let hundreds of years go by. Why would he do that? Except we serve a patient God who is giving every opportunity for people to come to him. Even a wicked nation like Israel in which God could find absolutely no good thing redeeming about it. Not a single thing. They just got worse and worse and worse. And even still, God gave them over 200 years to try to figure it out. And then finally brought judgment. I think it is so important for us in having hope and especially for our young people to keep in mind as the world keeps going forward that God's word never fails and that God's promises are never altered by time nor are they altered by unbelief. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. It's going to happen. And it doesn't matter how long it takes. It's going to happen. And that's what is waiting for Elijah's arrival is now Elijah's going to walk on the scene and begin to proclaim what needs to happen in the midst of a world that has no regard for God, no regard for his promises, but is in the depths of dark days. Sound familiar? We can key into the stories that are in the book of Kings because they speak to our culture and they speak to our day and time. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, these these things are hard for us, Lord. Lord, they are hard for us because we are bound by our physical bodies and we are bound by time and we are stuck in the ways of this way the universe is that you've made for us. And so we see things as taking so long. And Lord, sometimes we begin to doubt your word. So Lord, our prayer tonight is that you would strengthen our faith. Encourage our belief. That Lord, you would strengthen us so that we would not be rattled by the unbelief that is around us. We would never be dissuaded by those who stand against you and speak against you. And, Lord, that we would never be shaken by the amount of time that goes by. Lord, help us to hold on to the promise that we've read here. Help us to hold on to the promise that we understand that you are a patient God. You are patient with the world. You are patient with our country. And you are patient with us. And that is a praiseworthy thing. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for being patient with us. Lord, it's our hope and prayer that your patience would pay off with fruit and that uh, the nation would turn back to you, that the world would turn their eyes back to you. Lord, it's been our prayer this last year that these difficult times and events of this virus would cause people to open their eyes. it'd be a a means by which that people would look to you to understand they need to be looking for more than what's in this world. Lord, we pray that we would be instruments to that cause. And so help us to be faithful to your promises. help, Help us to proclaim your promises. And help us to never lose sight or ever waver on the promises that you've made to us. Lord, give us courage in these dark days. Give us the hope that we need and the strength that we need to shine as lights, to declare your good news, and to live faithfully for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm excited that uh, we're going to get to talk about Elijah this Wednesday and start talking about Elijah on Sunday nights. A lot of good things to start looking forward to because the picture of Elijah is just a stunning picture, but you have to see. The world that he walks into to appreciate what he's up against and what he has to do. So much that lies in store for him. Uh, This is an opportunity for you to turn turn back to God. We, we, We live in dark times. We live in hard situations. We live in a time when people are full of unbelief and are turning away from God. Can we help you in any way to turn to him, to follow him with all of your heart? Uh, we certainly want to offer the invitation to you. If there's anything we can do for you, won't you come while we stand and while we sing?